Well, hey there, and welcome back to First Take, a podcast ministry of First Reformed Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm Assistant Pastor Jim Curtis, here with my Senior Pastor, Brent Haran, to offer you our take this week on dispensationalism. All right, now that that tongue twister is out of here, uh, Brent, it's good to be back here, man. It's been a while since we've done a podcast. It feels really good to be doing this again. Yeah, man, I've really missed it. I think um, the past couple of months, we've been busy with a lot of other things, and we've always wanted to try to get back into our little uh, studio here at Woodmont and uh, <laughs> set up the microphones again. So feels good to be, be together like this again and get to talk about some things. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I thought that, um, you know, of course, we were just high production value earlier <laughs> on, right? But um, really, really excited to get back to this. You know, we've been going through just reopening and a lot of questions a lot of churches are trying to answer. So right. it feels really good to be back. So uh, what prompted this then? Like, we took a little break there. Okay, we'll see uh, if we take another break. But um, now that we've answered some of those questions, we're getting back into a rhythm. Uh, we're pulling the mics back out. We're plugging them up. Uh, we're going through all this production for what? What are we talking about? Mm. Well, I think one of the things that our, our church is missing um, has been our evening service where we haven't really been able to um, mm-hmm. extend some of our sermons, mm-hmm. have some conversations about it, uh, ask questions about it. And, you know, the blog was supposed to be sort of an outlet for that, obviously, yeah. this as well. And as you know, on Monday, I sat down to sort of write a blog. Um, I was going to walk through a few passages that mm-hmm. quickly turned into, well, I need to walk write three blogs. <laughs> and then I said, well, I need to write an intro to those three blogs. But then as I wrote the introduction, it turned into three blogs itself. And then as you and I kind of talked about it, I finally said, let's just do a podcast. It'd be yeah. easier to explain this rather than nuance everything over the course of multiple blogs. I still have the plan to um, exegete three passages mm-hmm. in a blog, but this will be sort of an introduction to those. I figured you were going to write a book, you know. You, right. You got I'm, a couple, couple articles already and then an introduction <laughs> to those. And you, know. and, the, and you already know there's enough books on this subject. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So, so dispensationalism, right? We're talking about this. Um, you mentioned it recently in, in a sermon. We're going through the Olivet Discourse in Luke. Mm-hmm. Really hard passage, really difficult, a lot of interpretations out there. I remember um, uh, we've talked about this in your sermon prep. Uh, in seminary, we remember a class that we had separately, but the same class, right, where, I mean, we spent a long time, I feel like, on this passage, mm-hmm. right, um, in, in all of uh, the synoptics. But um, dispensationalism really kind of provides its own flavor, Mm-hmm. to this passage, right? Um, and you brought that up, and, and uh, I th- think respectfully disagreed with them uh, throughout a different um, uh, different areas of the passage. I thought that was really helpful. But just really briefly, like, you're not a dispensationalist, obviously. I'm no. not. <laughs> Nobody in the PCA, like, pastors, teaching elders are, right? right? We don't really allow that. So why are we talking about dispensationalism? What, what, what's the point? I think that's a really good question, and it's it's one of the things that prompted me wanting to write uh, more uh, blog posts on this, because in a sermon I can only do so much, mm-hmm. and I don't just want to preach what we don't believe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But I think especially a passage like uh, Luke 21, Matthew 24, Mark 13, which are the, uh, the Olivet Discourse uh, mm-hmm. parallel passages, um, a lot of people will read those unknowingly with a dispensational uh, mindset, sort of mm-hmm. thinking it's only future. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just sort of one example of, uh, to me, I think even in our reform circles, simply because we're American, uh, dispensationalism has made its way into the church. I mean, mm-hmm. if you've been at a 
non-denominational church at all, if you've been in a Baptist church, if you've been in a Pentecostal church, charismatic church, mm-hmm. whatever it is, the the prevalent view often, um, the way they read the scriptures is through a dispensational lens, which has a particular flavor and a grid to it. And so um, even in our church, I'm sure there are people that are influenced by it and may not even know it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when I became a Christian, I was immediately ensconced in dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was the way every Christian read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't for a few years until somebody showed me, oh, no, there's other ways of understanding it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, covenant uh, theology would mm-hmm. be a, the other um, way to view the scriptures. Yeah. And um, so I think there's just ways that I think people in the church today are influenced by dispensationalism, and often we really don't know it until somebody says, well, I don't believe this, and they realize, oh, that's completely different than what I thought. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, there are a couple different things that, that come to mind when, when I think about the popularizing of dispensationalism. And the, the obvious one is the Left Behind novel right. series, right? Uh, Which by, you and I have both read. Right, yeah. I, um, I think I read them twice, actually, all the way through in, in <laughs> high school. Um, you know, with those silly little reading periods that you have to read a book, you know. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be a Christian um, and read this stuff. But um, And so, you know, just even throughout kind of my uh, journey in college and then seminary and meeting people who hold the popular level dispensationalism, right? There are pastors out there at dis- explicitly dispensational churches, mm-hmm. right? Um, the, the obvious one is John MacArthur. He's one that, that a lot of people here would know. Um, I read a lot of John MacArthur. Oh, yeah. You do. We reference him a lot. Um, great guy, but we would disagree with him about this. I'm not talking necessarily about them. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, just that popular level. Right. I feel like Left Behind has been the most influential thing, right? Well, the Nicolas Cage Left Behind movie. Yeah. Who could not have been And Kirk Cameron, by right? Right, yeah. Kirk Cameron, that's uh, right. That's just, uh, that's good stuff, man. Um, but like, so I almost call it Left Behindism on one level because it's more about like the rapture. It's more about what happens in Revelation. And a lot of people don't realize dispensationalism is bigger than that. Right. Right. And so, you know, we turn to, to Luke 21 and you say the word dispensationalism and some people might scratch their heads. Right. You know, it's more than the rapture. It's more than, than now. Of course, it says great tribulation in the Olivet Discourse. That's so you right. got to talk about it. But so, so let's do that then. Let's, let's, let's try and take a step back from left behindism and let's talk about dispensationalism as that grid or that framework you're talking about here. Uh, give us just a, a quick 30,000 foot overview of dispensationalism's approach to the Bible. Well, Jim, I think first maybe it'd be good for us to start with a little bit just of history of dispensationalism. It's relatively new in the church. Um, it really came about in the around the mid-1800s, and it's a theology that it's, it's not just one thing. It's not just, well, this is just one thing we believe. It's a whole big grid about mm-hmm. the way they see um, the whole of Scripture, um, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. So... A dispensationalist looks at the Bible through what they call dispensations, mm. right? And as you and I have talked before, the word dispensation is not a bad word. Right. But yeah. the way they think of it is that God deals with his people differently in each of these dispensations. So you could go back to the time of Adam, time of Noah, time of Abraham, and they've cut these out of the Bible, and they would say God deals with the people differently in each one of these dispensations. Um, again, it's not all bad, because we're going to talk about covenant theology on some level. Uh, but this this is not what people often don't understand about dispensationalism, is it's a 
whole big theology where mm. if we sat down and disagreed with them, it's not just in this particular verse or this particular verse. It's really in our presuppositions. It's in mm-hmm. the very beginning, the foundation of how we even look at Scripture. Mm-hmm. So that's just that's a quick overview of dispensationalism. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning too, right, that, that everybody has this. Everybody mm-hmm. has a set of glasses, a lens, a framework, a grid, a paradigm, whatever word you want to use in coming to the Bible because we believe that the entire Bible teaches one coherent story, one narrative, right? And so we would... Disagree, of course, with the dispensationalists, but we have our own, right? We have covenant mm-hmm. theology, like you said. And so it's, it's not necessarily that we disagree with them that they have one, right? right? <laughs> so much as we disagree with the content of, of how they interpret these dispensations or what we would call administrations. But enough about covenant theology because we, we are doing an episode about it. Yep. We're actually uh, going to bring in a special guest who just wrote a book on this. So tease that for our folks. Stay tuned for that episode. Um, where we're going to de- take a deep dive into that in- new introduction. I'm really excited about right. that. Hopefully and I, I, think, I think it's good to, to even say now that our dispensationalist brothers, a couple things on this. Um, number one, they are usually some of the strongest uh, advocates for the inerrancy of Scripture. Mm, these, right. are, these, these guys are the ones who love the Bible, believe in justification by faith alone, believe the Bible is inerrant, infallible. Mm-hmm. There are, are brothers in those things. They would also say, to be fair to them, that their view, their grid arises from Scripture, right? As we would say, covenant theology is not something that we bring to the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. We think the Bible teaches that's covenant right. theology. And that's why with them, to be fair, it's okay, well, let's talk about the Scriptures and let's see if your view is true. Mm-hmm. So it's not like either side is trying to uh, falsely interpret the Bible or anything. That's right. Um, both so, of us are coming to the scriptures, trying to figure out what is what do the scriptures teach. That's right. Yeah, and we we respectfully disagree. We're going to mm-hmm. see these guys in heaven. Right? That's right. That's We're going to see a lot of them in heaven. It's They'll be closer really to Jesus than we will. Yes, many right. Of them, right. That's right. That's exactly right. So so we but we disagree with them nonetheless. Right. And so as we often do when we talk to and about dispensationalists and their theology, let's go to to those particular disagreements. So to talk to me about maybe two or three different things that we disagree with dispensationalists about and and maybe why we disagree with them about those things. Sure, and I think what's important here is that often the disagreement between covenant theology, dispensationalism, finds its discussion in eschatology. It finds its discussion in the end times, where right. rapture, tribulation, uh, the millennium, those types of mm-hmm. things. And I'm going to deal with those in the blog post sort of showing the differences of certain scriptures that, that point to that. But sort of higher level than that, there are certain commitments that uh, dispensationalists comes to the scriptures, as we do as well, and just trying to show some of the differences. And I think one of them is a dispensationalist typically approaches the Bible um, and looks at the Old and New Testament as if there's more discontinuity than maybe you and I would say. Mm. We believe there's a lot of continuity between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. We believe the the Old Testament is sort of finds its full flower in the New Testament. So with your um, dispensationalists, they're going to see a, a, almost like a sharp break between the Old Testament and New Testament. Doesn't mean they don't believe the Old Testament's important. They just don't see it as relevant or as relevant um, to the New Testament period even. And some of these, these aren't just theological questions. These actually have sort of where rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a couple of examples of the discontinuity would be 
you know, people don't often know this, but you'll run into people that don't believe in the uh, the fourth commandment that it is um, today in force. Sort of a, of the Ten Commandments, the, the the fourth commandment is abrogated. It's mm-hmm. no longer, you no longer have to follow. You don't have to follow the Sabbath commandment. That doesn't believe they, that they would tell you you can't go to church or anything. Right, they just don't right. think. They still worship on Sundays. That's right. right. Yeah. They still do, but they might think it's okay to do Saturday and those types of things. But the reason they believe this is that in the New Testament, it would be argued that the fourth commandment is not mentioned. Mm-hmm. All the other nine are. And since it's not mentioned in the New Testament, Mm-hmm. then it's no longer enforced. You can mm-hmm. see that discontinuity there where you and I would say, well, it doesn't matter if it's mentioned in the New Testament, mm-hmm. though we could probably show that it is. We would say, God mentioned it you know, in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. It right. hasn't changed. Right, so whereas they would say, we, if, if we're supposed to do it, we need to see it in the New Testament, mm-hmm. we would say, well, God put these things into place. He's the only one who can say they're no longer binding. Right. So we would need a, a positive command or a positive place in the New Testament where it's taught that these things don't happen anymore. So for example, uh, think of the kosher laws, right? Mm-hmm. The food laws. We we see that re- explicitly in the text, rescinded. It's not what goes into the mouth of man that makes mm-hmm. him unclean. It's what comes out of right. it, right? So, um, so we would just kind of take that just whole different approach there. And I think that's a helpful illustration to our approach to the Bible. And I uh, think that's a great example, the food laws. Uh, how many dreams did Peter need to have right. before he finally said, okay, food laws, which if you were going to put a hierarchy on food laws, fourth commandment, which one's more important? He needed, was it three dreams? Right. To finally be convinced that the food laws were no longer uh, in place. In addition to Paul getting on to him about circumcision, <laughs> in addition to an entire council of Jerusalem. That's right. right. Yeah. How many dreams would he need to learn that the fourth commandment written on stone Right mm. is no longer in effect. It right. would you would you would need something to convince the people of this. That's exactly so. right. Yeah, and I think too here that this is a, a helpful illustration because we would say there is a difference between the Old and New Testament mm-hmm. with with regards to food laws, right? We don't follow the kosher laws anymore because we don't believe that they're binding anymore. Right. And so I think there it's helpful maybe to just tell our folks, you know, dispensationalists would see that discrepancy, if you can call it that, just for mm-hmm. the sake of discussion for a second, and say, what do we do with that? Okay, we read in the law of the Old Testament, don't eat shellfish, which you shouldn't anyway. And you're allergic to, so right. you can't. Uh, so. It's evil right. food, really. Right. But um, it says don't do that, and now all of a sudden Christians are, are eating it, are eating pork, are mm-hmm. eating these sorts of different things, and not going through kind of what the law says to go through on the food laws. And I think that's helpful to understand, you know, dispensationalists are wrestling with something really true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that they come with that different framework. Right. right? Um, okay, so in this continuity, discontinuity, is there anything else, any other maybe examples of discontinuity, continuity you think might be helpful for folks to understand the practicality of the differences between us and dispensationalists? Right. I think one that we notice, but we don't always know why. And don't hear me saying that that this is the only reason this happens. But I think especially with our liturgy, you know, we talk about the things, the stuff that we do in worship. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to a just a typical non-denominational Baptist church, the liturgy is what? You're going to have uh, prayer, you're going to have some singing, you're going to have uh, a sermon and giving, right? Um, and sometimes the Lord's Supper. And sometimes the Lord's Supper, right? Um, why is it that we have all of the things we have in our Invocation, service? call to worship, confession of sin, faith, pardon. All yes. All, why is that in there? Well, we think that comes from the Old Testament, that we're lining it up with a lot of the sacrifices in the worship that was in the Old Testament. 
Well, if you talk to a lot of dispensationalists, whether they know it or not, they're basically saying it doesn't apply today. And you'll hear a lot of them say, we can basically make worship what we want it to be. Mm -hmm. Now, that's within reason. They're not saying we should do something sinful, but that's why they don't have a lot of those things. So that actually has a huge practical import as to what you do on Sunday, because you don't think the Old Testament speaks to your New Testament worship. Mm -hmm. Um, One last one would be um, obviously an easy one, baptism. Right. Right. So... This is, this is where it's not just that Baptists somehow read the Bible and say, well, I just think you need to baptize people who profess faith. And they mm-hmm. go, and that's my argument. Part of it is because coming at it from a dispensational model, mm-hmm. that this discontinuity, so whereas you and I would see circumcision being the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, okay, sign of the covenant in the New Testament, baptism. Therefore, okay, how'd they do it in the Old Testament? Children of believers, okay. We pass on that sign to the children of believers today. Mm-hmm. Dispensationalists, even when you show them Colossians 2, Acts 2, and you show them the continuity that even Paul in the Scripture brings between mm-hmm. circumcision and baptism, they still will say that the New Testament sign is different in certain right. ways, and especially not just the mode, right, but who it's for. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not the only reason, but you can see we just picked three things Mm-hmm. that these are huge categories mm-hmm. and huge things that, that have practical import. Um, and often, if you went to somebody at a non-denominational church here and you just said, hey, your church is very dispensational, they would go, I have no idea what that word is. Yeah. I don't know what you mean. Yeah. It's just, it's the water that they swim in. Just mm-hmm. like our church swims in covenant theology, but mm-hmm. often may not know it. Right. Right. Even though we will we'll speak about it all the time. Yeah. We just don't give them the full picture. That's right. Yeah. I think, again, it just comes down to our approach in those assumptions. Right. Right. We would see the signs of covenants like circumcision, like the rainbow, like mm. baptism, and we would see that that signs and seals, sacraments of covenants have kind of always functioned this way, mm-hmm. have always kind of done this. Whereas, again, you come from the dispensational perspective, they need to see it explicitly affirmed mm-hmm. rather than kind of assumed and then God has to come in and rescind it. That's right? a great, yeah. Great so I think, I think that that may be uh, helpful in understanding the continuity and discontinuity. Okay, rapid fire real quick. You're talking to a dispensationalist. Maybe one, two passages of scripture you might take them to to talk about continuity and discontinuity. Well, one of that you and I have talked about, um, you know, you think of any passage that talks about us being children of Abraham. Right. Right, so you could look at uh, Romans, uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. You could look at uh, Galatians 2 and 3, talking about us being children of the promise, that we are co-heirs, right, uh, with Christ, of course, but the heirs of the promise to Abraham. So there's this Abrahamic covenant that took place, right. and today we're in the same line as Abraham. Mm-hmm. That would seem to say that's a huge amount of continuity, right. whereas the dispensationalists, honestly, you and I have talked about, I'm not exactly sure how they have... I can guess, and I've read some of it, but I don't want to speak for too many of them, how they would really deal with that passage. Mm-hmm. They would obviously affirm it, but I think in their structure, they might struggle, where you and I would say, well, obviously the Abrahamic covenant is simply fulfilled. Blessing to the nations. Blessings right? to the nations, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Um, all the things of the promise of land, the promise of seed, we see fulfilled in Jesus, who right. is the true seed, mm-hmm. right? And then also the land, Jesus is the land. Right. He is the one that we're being brought to. So we... 
we see uh, much more continuity. And if we started to go through all the various things that we talk right. about, we'd just be here all day. That's right. Yeah. Um, doing that. Yeah. And just two other places that I think of immediately off the top of my head. One of my favorite places to go in covenant theology is Genesis three, mm. the promised offspring to crush the head of the serpent. Um, I think that that tells us that God has always had this plan in mind, right? And that he's working that plan through all of these administrations, even dispensations throughout the Old Testament, right? right? And then the other one I think of uh, is basically any prophecy of Jesus in the Old (laughs) Testament. But I really love that one in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses is like, somebody's coming from among you. He's going to be one of your brothers and God's going to put his word in his mouth and you better listen to Mm. him. Right. And so I think I think that that imagery of he's gonna put his word in his mouth, aka same message. There's a there's a continuity mm. of salvation going on here right. as well. Um, we can talk about um, theological principles, we could talk about solus Christus, we could talk about all sorts of stuff, but let's let's move on to another point of disagreement. Um, speaking of Abraham as our father, I suspect <laughs> I know where you're going now. So what's maybe the second point of disagreement we have with them? Well, in this one in particular is what I would say one of the two most important foundations with regard to dispensationalism. And if you were to read someone like a Charles Ryrie or some mm. other people, they would tell you that um, when you read the scripture, you need to think of Israel and the church as two separate entities. Mm-hmm. That's the way a dispensationalist would read it. Um, they see all, there are certain promises for the nation of Israel, physical, ethnic mm-hmm. Israel, and then there's this thing called the church. Um, and a lot of them would tell you that when Jesus came, that he offered the kingdom to the Israelites, to the Jews, and they rejected, and therefore God went off and sort of created a church. Now, your good dispensationalist would say that was always the plan, right. of course, right? But they think we're in a particular time today, what they would consider a parenthesis, and I'll show this more when we do the blog post. Yeah. Um of the church age, which is separate from Israel. And so there are a lot of dispensationalists that would tell you that even in eternity, Israel has a special place and is kept separate from the church. So Mm. when you're reading scripture and it uses the word Israel, that's physical Israel. Mm. You can't, whereas where you and I would say, Israel is like another synonym, a type for the people of God. Israel being a type of the church. Mm -hmm. So we're, this also, you can see how this fits with continuity, discontinuity. We see the church as the fulfillment of the type of which Israel was. So it's one people of God throughout Mm -hmm. all time. And then in in our world, we don't, meaning like the Reformed covenantal world, there might be some disagreement about what we think is gonna happen to uh, the nation of Israel in the future. You can mm-hmm. we'd have to look like Romans eleven to discuss some of that. Mm-hmm. But this is an enormous one. Yeah, and it affects all kinds of things. Um, I don't want to get political, but um, where a lot of churches are in strong support of the nation of Israel, and mm-hmm. that's fine. In a as far as like. If, if that's a good thing for our country to do. Yeah, we can have right? that political conversation some other time. Right. Yeah. We can have that, you know, we can talk about that. But as far as thinking that somehow that's the people of God mm. and that that's a special people of God. Now we're in the theological We're in the theological right, yeah. world. Um, the Bible says the people of God are the church and anyone else who professes Christ, doesn't matter if you are, are mm. Jewish, mm-hmm. if you are American, if you're African, if you're European, whatever it is, yeah. it doesn't, it's not nation specific right. anymore. Jesus it, says to the woman at the well, I tell you, the perfect. time is coming and indeed is now here where they shall neither worship God on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That's right. But everywhere in spirit and in truth. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. 
Yeah, so um, I think it may be helpful just really quickly to bring up re- replacement theology, right? Sure. That's a term that our people may come across at some point. Um, this may be a little technical, a.k.a. don't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of dispensationalists would come and tell me, a covenant theologian, that that I believe in replacement theology, uh, Brent, that your commitment that Israel and the church are actually one entity, one group of people, one people of God, um, isn't actually what we believe. What we mm-hmm. believe is that the church replaces Israel. Right. And that's not true. Right. Um, because like you said, we, we believe that they've actually been, been one. And, um, I remember I was asked in my ordination exam, this question, I'm curious, I'm going to ask it to you. See Uh-oh. if you, yes. Uh, you're the chairman of our <laughs> candidates. You better get this right. Who was the first member of the church? Oh, well, if you were going to ask me, I'd probably go back to Adam or I would say Abraham, but Adam, I'd go all the way back Yeah, to so covenant theology, we would see the church in Genesis, right? right? We would see that the church is, is another word for Israel, which is another word for the people of God, the corporate people, right? Um, and the Bible uses even beyond Israel and the church, uses very different words mm-hmm. too. Talks about the bride of Christ, talks about the body of Christ, talks about uh, us in a variety of terms. And so so I just, I really struggle with with restricting it, right? That's right. To those terms uh, well, as well. Well, and the thing with replacement theology, the scriptures talk about us being engrafted right. into Israel. That's so right. Israel continues as far as being the people of God, right. and the Gentiles have been engrafted into the people of Israel that don't replace Israel. Yeah. Um, and just thinking of some of the things you're talking about with regard to where's the church begin, right? Mm-hmm. Your dispensationalist would tell you it, it begins in Acts 2 at Pentecost. That's exactly right, yeah. But you and I would show them various passages, thinking of Hebrews, when it talks about the assembly in the wilderness. That's right, yeah. Right? The the church, uh, even the language of Scripture is going to tell you that the church is in the Old Testament as well. Right, that's right. So you, Even the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's right. uses the Greek word ekklesia yeah, to talk assembly, about the congregation of Israel. That's right. In the Old Testament. And and what I think, it's hard to, to you and I be here for hours, to explain the significance of this difference. That's right. This is one of those huge foundational stones, the grid through which a dispensationalist reads the Bible. Mm -hmm. So when he sees things like Luke 21, and it has Mm -hmm. to do with Israel, it can't, you know, it's got to be future because they're thinking of certain things that are going to happen in the future. There are certain passages where they'll read the word Israel, um, Galatians, at the end of Galatians, Mm -hmm. it says, peace be upon the church of God, or peace be upon, um, yeah, the church of God. Even the, is it the Israel of God is what mm. it says. And there's a huge argument over that word even. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the Greek word chi. Right. And your dispensationalist says, see, right there, peace be upon the church. And Israel. And Israel. Yeah. And you and I would say, actually, they're more in apposition. Right. Um, yeah. It's peace be upon the church. Right. Which is, or even the right. Israel of God. We think Paul has put those together where the dispensationalist says, no, those are separate Well, and we would, going back to the Greek word ekklesia for church, right, used in the Greek Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament is the one that's quoted in the New Testament, right? When you come across Old Testament passages in Hebrews or Paul or wherever, they're quoting the Septuagint Mm. rather than the Hebrew Old Testament that we had to study in seminary. And so we would go to the Galatians, we'd see both, and we'd say, this is what happened in the Old Testament. The congregation, ekklesia, the church of Israel. Yep. Right, so we would see that again. That, that's an issue of continuity, right? Isn't it? it is, and I think maybe it'd be good before we leave this point just to mention one thing. We're talking about dispensationalists, right? Well, and you know, there's different flavors of dispensationalists, right. yeah. and one of the important changes 
in more recent history is what's called progressive dispensationalism. And progressive dispensationalism, the probably the easiest way to describe it is they have moved closer to our view. And one of the most important things about a progressive dispensationalist is they actually don't agree that mm. Israel and the church are two different entities. Right. So that's a that's a great movement. We're so much closer to the, our brothers there. Um, we the just need them to slide a little further. We, along, we just right? needed them to keep going a yeah, little bit, that's right. and we need them to bring their classic dispensationalist brothers along, along with to them, show right. them that. So there are advances, there are changes, there's mm. there's flavors, and that, that's actually a really um, good one and a welcomed one in yeah. dispensationalist thought. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not a monolithic. That's right. Of, so you you brought up Romans 11 engrafted, okay, in terms of Bible passages. Uh, uh, two that come to mind, again, Galatians, right? I feel mm. like Galatians is going to be a thorn in the side of a dispensational, mm-hmm. really. Um, uh, the spiritual sons of Abraham means that we are Israel, yep. right? It has to mean that. Um, and then uh, one of my favorites, actually, is Jeremiah 31, mm. right? You're talking about the new covenant, right? This is one of their go-to passages. And I love it when they take me there, because if you go there, it says, Behold, I am making a new covenant with the house of Israel. Mm. The new covenant is made with the house of Israel because the church and Israel are, are one That's people. right. Okay, so... And wait, real quick, because that's yeah. a really important one because there are some dispensationalists that would tell you because of that passage, we are not in the new covenant and that the new covenant, we're still waiting for its So you've got progressive dispensationalists who are inching closer to us and then you've got people on the other side of it. They're going the other way. They're, they're saying, the well, way, and yeah. you ask them, well, what are we in? Well, we're in the church age. Well, how does that relate to the new covenant? Well, it's not the new covenant. And then you say... Well, what is Jesus doing at the Lord's Supper when he, you know, institutes right. the new covenant? Right. But there are, that's, you can see how big uh, these, how important these are yeah. and how big a change they can be to your thought, theology and the way you understand right. uh, reality and the yeah. Bible. So Yeah, and I, I think immensely practical ways in which right. a grid, a way to read the entire Bible affects even our politics, like you said, yeah. even even how we interact with other people. That's right. Um, okay, any other points of, of disagreement with dispensationals? Okay, last one, because uh, I know we're going to run out of time. But this this one is, I would I don't know which one really comes first. Yeah. But it's between one I just mentioned, Israel and the church difference. Um, but they, they hold to what they're going to call a literal interpretation of the Bible. Right. Okay, now take a minute to explain this. Jim, you and I would hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible, but what we mean by that is different than what they mean. Right. We mean the Bible means what it says, right? right? Yeah. Um, a literal interpretation of the Bible for a dispensationalist, just to give you an example, they would say it's literal where possible. So if you took them to Revelation and you say, well, it says there's a dragon. Do you believe there's going to be a real dragon? They would say... No, because, you know, that's not possible. We mm-hmm. think that that actually is meant to be symbolic or metaphoric. But it's or, possible or, that what John saw in the vision, he thought of as a dragon, but could have been something else. That's right. Something mechanical, something crazy. That's and, right. Yeah. And this literal interpretation of the Bible affects so many passages. It's right. hard to, I mean, I'm going to do one of them in the blog post, and it's Revelation chapter 20. Mm-hmm. And part of what I want to deliver to my dispensationalist brothers is something we've already talked about on the podcast, and you know it. It's genre sensitivity, yeah. Because you, if you think that Genesis one is to be read the same way as Revelation twenty, you have completely missed the Bible. And mm-hmm. I've actually been asked that question by multiple dispensationalists, and they said, "Well, why don't you read? You, you know, you believe in sort of the literal history of Genesis one. Mm-hmm. How come you don't believe in the literal future of Revelation 20? And I say, "Because I'm actually genre sensitive, uh, right. sensitive to the Bible. Right. I." I think Revelation 20 is apocalyptic language. It was meant to be symbolic, right. where I think Genesis is history. Right. Um, 
the response I typically get is a little bit of a laugh. They laugh at genre sensitivity in the mm-hmm. Bible. Okay, now, literal interpretation is one of those pillars of dispensationalism that leads to everything. So, for example, I mentioned this earlier. If they see the word Israel, it means Israel, and it means right. na- national, right. ethnic Israel. One of the problems for them is when you read Romans 9, and Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. And you go, mm. well, what does that mean? Yeah. Um, which, which Israel is he talking about? He actually talks about both ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel is what we're talking about there. So, it again, I'm going to work through some of these things in the blog, but the literal interpretation of the Bible, um, actually, I think, squelches some conversation between dispensationalists mm. and, and covenant theologians, because we'll approach a scripture and we'll say, I see this pointing, so like take Revelation 20, I see this as symbolic because I think the thousand years it's mentioned there is not meant to be taken literal. And their response immediately is, well, you just don't take the Bible literally. Right. And so it shuts down conversation rather than discussion of exegesis. Right. Um, so this is run throughout the scriptures in all parts, and um, and it affects everything that they believe. Yeah. And um, I think that's exactly right. You, you know, we, we've been talking about dispensationalism as this, this overarching grid, this framework, what we would call a biblical theology, mm-hmm. right, a way to read the Bible. This is their interpretive grid. Like this is this is what they do every passage of the Bible mm-hmm. again where possible. And so, you know, even going back to the Genesis Revelation piece, uh, you know, I don't read Harry Potter the same way I read a science textbook. Right. And I don't read a science textbook or Harry Potter the same way I would read Dr. Kruger's book on canon. Yeah, right? that's right. Or uh, whatever other nerdy theological book we could pull <laughs> off our shelves, right? I mean, I would read these books very differently. Uh, and, I, and that's important. Um, and so I'm not sure why I would be in, uh, uh, expected to go to a book like Revelation that's just chocked full of imagery, um, again, to pull out the Greek nerd, um, uh, there's language in there that doesn't make sense, mm. that violates rules. And that's what we see when, when people are trying to describe the apocalypse in yep, the Bible. That's right. Um, uh, I don't understand why that's the case, but then you go back to Genesis 1 and the Hebrew is clear, concise, it's just um, very, very proper Hebrew. Mm-hmm. It's it's beautiful yeah. Hebrew, um, and that's just that's a stark contrast, right, between the two, where one is literally the the literally the the genre <laughs> of narrative, and the other one is literally the, the genre of apocalyptic literature. Right. So we would say, right, we we read the Bible literarily, hmm. right, according to its literary genre, right. because we can't read the Psalms. The same way that we read the Gospels. That's right. Right. Um, any passages that you might, I mean, you've, again, you've, you've gone to kind of the, some of the discrepancies, some of the issues in Revelation. Any other passages that you might turn to to talk about this literal hermeneutic with dispensationals? Well, I'll give you, I, I think it'd be helpful maybe to just think about the passage I'm preaching through, mm. right? Um, now, you've got Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Those are all parallel passages of the Olivet Discourse, mm. right? Um some parts of those, those passages, the, those uh, scriptures, um, lead a dispensationalist to understand them. If they read them, quote-unquote, literally, mm-hmm. so when it says the sun and moon will be darkened, right? Mm-hmm. You have to take that literally. Now, I'm going to show, uh, what is it, in about nine days, how that's meant to be taken metaphorically, mm-hmm. symbolically, and it actually has Old Testament reference to it. Mm-hmm. But for them, when it says the sun is dark and moon will not give its light, it must be literal, which means it must be the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And so it can't be about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD because mm-hmm. of that. It can't relate to that time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And just sort of to give a, a big picture as we're, we're sort of, I know we're going to wrap up here in a minute, but you think of all the three things we point out, discontinuity, mm-hmm. Israel and the church, um, and literal interpretation. I know I come to a passage like Luke 21, and people are, I'm sure they've heard different things sitting in our pews, right? They've, mm-hmm. they've probably read it from a dispensational model and didn't even know it. That's, what, that's a sermon they heard, or even just, they just think it's the end of the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting is I'm sitting there preaching through my grid. Right. <laughs> they, they get my glasses, right. and it might seem obvious at that point, right? But they're getting a different grid right. uh, to read those portions of Scripture, where if you sat under a dispensational guy, you right. might say, oh, I, I understand, but then there's just, you know, I understand why he's saying that. Right. This is why you have to sit down and um, go through the this big conversation about right. why we see the Bible so differently. Yeah, one passage that I just think of, and, and I've talked to dispensationals about is I'm actually very confused why dispensationals aren't Lutheran when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Mm. When Jesus says, this bread is my body, Mm. right? Uh, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Um, And so, you know, it's it's just interesting, ironic uh, to me that, that they would kind of carve out some of these things and be more traditionally and historically Baptist, Mm. right? Going back well before dispensationalism was around, um, holding on to that, coming into their dispensationalism. Uh, and so so that's one of my my, my things to do is I, I become a Lutheran for a quick minute and talk to them <laughs> about that passage. But Well, hey, brother, um, thanks so much for your time. We are well out of time. Yep. Looking forward uh, to this episode coming up with a special guest mm-hmm. to be named. Uh, really looking forward to that um, coming soon, Lord willing, to talk about covenant theology, maybe be uh, a, a little more cognizant of what we believe, right? right. It's, it's one thing to say, hey, we don't believe this, and here's why. I think the next episode is going to be very helpful to our people. So, Brent, thanks for your time. Thanks for your thoughts on dispensationalism, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim.